from VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our topic, what is happening with voting rights in the United States? The Senate recently failed to pass federal legislation to overhaul the nation's voting rules, a key pillar of U.S. President Joe Biden's agenda. Despite the fact that all 50 Democratic senators were in favor of the legislation, two Democrats opposed amending the filibuster rule, which requires a supermajority of 60 votes to take up and vote on the legislation, so the legislation was blocked. All 50 Republicans opposed the substance of the voting rights bill. Here's the immediate context. In the wake of Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 elections, approximately 19 Republican-led states have either proposed or passed restrictive voting laws. Many of these state legislatures argue that they are simply trying to prevent voter fraud. But critics say their true motive is to suppress voter turnout among minority communities, particularly African-Americans who tend to vote for Democrats. To counter this slew of laws and to help restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act, important provisions of which have been recently struck down by the Supreme Court, Congress proposed passing the Freedom to Vote, John R. Lewis Act. The Associated Press reports that the law would have made Election Day a national holiday, ensured access to early voting and mail-in ballots, which have become especially popular during the COVID-19 pandemic, and enabled the Justice Department to intervene in states with a history of voter interference, among other changes. Our guest on this edition of the program will help us better understand the uneven trajectory of voting rights in America and why we are witnessing a plethora of voter suppression laws in Republican-led states. Michael Waldman is president of the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. According to its website, the Brennan Center is a nonpartisan law and policy institute that focuses on improving systems of democracy and justice. It is a leading national voice on voting rights, money in politics, criminal justice reform, and constitutional law. Michael Waldman, who has led the center for more than 15 years, is a constitutional lawyer and writer who is an expert on the presidency and American democracy. He is also the author of The Fight to Vote, published in 2016. The book tells the story of the ongoing struggle to win and maintain voting rights throughout American history. There are two new chapters which address the new assault on voting rights and the push for federal legislation to stop it. Michael Waldman joins us via Skype to discuss it all. Michael Waldman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Why do you believe there's been so much backsliding in voting rights in America? Why are we seeing what appears to be an inordinate and some would say meritless emphasis on voter fraud, which is rather rare and myriad attempts by predominantly Republican-controlled states to suppress voting? Well, the country is undergoing a great deal of change. It's undergoing a great deal of demographic change. And it turns out that this kind of thing we're seeing now with people pushing to restrict voting rights and other people pushing to expand them, we can look at it and say, why is this happening now? And it turns out it really has been happening since the beginning of the country's history. 
even well before Donald Trump, as new and discordant a note as he strikes. It really is baked into the story of the country, going back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, in some pretty fundamental ways. And Michael, could you please just expand on that a bit, particularly the you know racial dimension? At the very beginning, the United States was anything but what any of us would regard as a democracy. Only white men who owned property could vote, and that was a legacy from British colonialism. And we have the oldest written constitution and we're one of the oldest democracies, but that means we are encumbered with a lot of things still from that period in the past. But the ideals of the American Revolution were pretty radical at the time and began to change and challenge that very elitist view of who could vote. And the Declaration of Independence said that government was legitimate only if it rested on the consent of the governed. That was seen right then as challenging notions of racial inequality, of challenging all kinds of other notions. And from the very start, it became a big fight over who would become part of the democracy. That year in 1776, Ben Franklin wrote the Constitution for Pennsylvania. Each state had to write their own constitution during the revolution. And the Pennsylvania Constitution ended that property requirement so poor and working class men could vote. Up in Massachusetts, another one of the revered founders of the country, John Adams, who was later president, he was writing their constitution. And he was urged, hey, why don't you do what they did in Pennsylvania and eliminate the property requirement? And Adams, he was aghast. He said, if we do that, women will demand the right to vote. Lads of 18 will demand the right to vote. And men who have not a farthing to their name will think themselves worthy of an equal voice in government and they will demand the right to vote, John Adams said, there will be no end of it. And that's kind of the story of the American democracy. There has been no end of it. There's been an endless fight over who gets to vote and how the votes are counted. It started in the 1820s and 1830s when that property requirement was ended so that working class and poor white men could vote everywhere. And then after the Civil War was the next great breakthrough, but then a tremendous reverse. Black men fought in the Union Army. One out of five Union soldiers was a black man. And Abraham Lincoln did not start the war as supporter of voting rights for black people. But the war changed him on this as on so much else. And after the war, he gave a speech from the White House from the second floor window saying that he was now for voting rights for black men. And one of the people in the audience was John Wilkes Booth. And when he heard Lincoln say that, he said, that means citizenship. That is the last speech he will give. And he actually tried to get the guy standing next to him to shoot Lincoln on the spot. And when that man wouldn't do it, John Wilkes Booth said, well, then, by God, I will put him through. And, of course, two days later, he went to Ford's Theater and assassinated Lincoln. This issue of voting rights for black men was central to the country in the mid and late 1800s. And the 15th Amendment to the Constitution protected that right to vote for black men. And there was a flowering of democracy in the South. There were black governors and senators and members of Congress and massive turnout and participation. This is something people don't realize, and it was kind of, frankly, covered up for a long time. But it was withdrawn. There was terrorism from the Ku Klux Klan and other groups. And the right to vote for black men 
was basically taken away. And it shows that progress does not go only in one direction. And for seven decades, there was disenfranchisement and Jim Crow laws, as they're known, and discrimination. And it's a very important reminder to understand that these things don't just happen automatically. Progress does not just happen on its own. Indeed, we can see uh, a lot of backsliding. And speaking of Jim Crow, President Joe Biden characterized many of the restrictive voting laws we're seeing emanating from some of these Republican states as Jim Crow 2.0. So I'd like you to look at with us the plethora of restrictive voting laws we're seeing, which presumably helped to precipitate and accelerate the need for the federal legislation called the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act, which we just said failed. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I'd like you to look at these laws. One might say that they were passed, you know, in the wake of false claims of election fraud in the 2020 presidential election deemed by the uh, Trump administration officials as one of the safest and most secure elections in American history. And it also followed, that is, these laws that are deemed restrictive, the so-called big lie, which then led to the horrific January 6th insurrection. So let's get your critique. You know, there's the Georgia state law which has been heavily criticized by Democrats and the Biden administration. What's wrong with the law, in your view? How do you see it as suppressing the vote? Well, let's start by recognizing what an extraordinary achievement the 2020 election was. Despite the pandemic and despite voter suppression and lies, it was the highest voter turnout in the United States since 1900. And as you say, it was a very secure election. It's important that listeners understand that voter fraud is vanishingly rare. You are statistically more likely to be hit by lightning than to commit in-person voter impersonation, for example. It's just a myth. It's just a lie, as you say. And despite the extraordinary success of running this election under these terribly difficult circumstances— We received the response of President Donald Trump's big lie, the claim of the stolen election, refusal to have a peaceful transfer of power, the insurrection, of course, driven by that big lie, and this wave of new laws in the states driven by the big lie to make it harder for people to vote. And these laws, it's important to note, are targeted. Some of them are worse than others. Some are really bad. Some are not so bad. But invariably, they target black voters and Latino voters and Asian voters and young voters. And this is at a time of great demographic change in our country. Now, the Georgia law was the first one to pass amid big controversy in early 2021. And it went after some of the things that had been so successful in the previous year, but again, in a targeted way. A lot of people, it turned out, liked to vote by mail. That had always in the past been uncontroversial, but it actually, if anything, been used by older Republican voters. The Georgia law basically ended vote by mail for anyone under 65. It made other changes after controversy, and it wasn't as bad as that, but it goes after other voting practices that are used, especially by black voters in Georgia. It goes after drop boxes, which are these secure boxes where if you vote by mail, you can drop your ballot in a box. It limits those. It banned mobile voting where government officials go out in a truck to make it so everybody can vote. The only place in the whole state of Georgia that used that was Atlanta, which is, of course, a very heavily black city. There's a lot of attention to one provision, which isn't really the worst thing in the bill, which is that it makes it a crime to give people standing on line to vote, water or a snack. But the only community 
communities where people stand online to vote for a long time in Georgia are black communities. So over and over and over again, you saw these very sometimes subtle things targeted. And then on top of that, and this is true in Georgia and in the other states as well, we saw a new twist, which is really dangerous and is sort of familiar unfortunately, from places around the world where there is democratic backsliding. The legislators changed the rules about who counts the results. They tried to put the power in the hands of the state legislature, which is a partisan Republican. Give you an example. One of the aspects of the drama around Trump refusing to accept the results of the election and trying to overthrow our democracy, basically, was he was trying to get them to change the result in Georgia, which Joe Biden had won. And the Secretary of State of Georgia, the person who runs the elections in Georgia, it's an elected official, was a conservative Republican named Brad Raffensperger. And Trump called him, threatened him with criminal prosecution if he didn't give in, but said, I need to find 11,000 votes because that's the amount he needed to win in the state. And Raffensperger showed real courage and stood up to Trump, stood up to his blackmail and released the tape of the conversation. And it's now the subject of a criminal investigation in Georgia. But what was the response of the state legislature? They should have given him a medal. Instead, they took his office out of the job of certifying the winners for elections. You see that kind of thing over and over again in Texas, in Georgia, in Arizona, and other places where they're either passing or looking at these laws, changing who counts the votes. The more we know, the more it is clear that Trump really tried to overthrow the American political system and refused to leave office. And it was chaotic. It was clown-like. But there's no reason to think it will be chaotic and incompetent the next time, whether by him or someone else. And what we're seeing now is a systematic effort to remove the obstacles to Trump or somebody else stealing the next election. This is made possible because of the way our election laws in the United States work. Starting from the very beginning, we had 13 colonies, then 13 states. They each had their own election rules. They ran the elections. Now we have 50 states, and it's really actually not just states, but the counties within the states that do this. And what that means is that there are a lot of places where something could go wrong. And unfortunately, too often they do go wrong. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. Our guest is Michael Waldman president of the Brennan Center for Justice, based in New York. He is also the author of The Fight to Vote. I'm Carol Castiel. This is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Mohamed Abdi Colombia from Mogadishu, Somalia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. We're back to our special guest, Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice, and continue our conversation about voting rights. It's been fascinating what you have been telling us, Michael, giving us the historical context and the threat to our democracy. So let me get back to another basic and rather quirky fact of the American voting system And that is the fact that here in the United States, it is the states and not the federal government that normally organizes and runs elections. So what do you say to the critics who say, look, 
elections are the province of the states and that the new bill that was recently proposed and then failed mostly because of the lack of the ability to overcome the filibuster rule that you know it's overreach what do you say to these mostly republicans who are saying the states control and should be organizing the elections Well, this, too, is one of the old debates in American history. States do run elections, but there are numerous instances where when states abuse the rights of their own people, as I would say they are now, then the federal government steps in. And that's really the moment we're in to those who support this legislation. The Constitution is quite clear. Yes, states run the elections, but the federal government and Congress can override them at any time to pass national laws to set national standards. So what this legislation does is set national standards for elections, makes Election Day a holiday, restores the Voting Rights Act, which was the federal law, which policed states with a history of racial discrimination in voting. All of these are things that in the past, anyway, the Supreme Court has deemed to be perfectly constitutional. They were backed up because when they wrote the Constitution, James Madison, who was known as the father of the Constitution, felt it was critical that there be a provision in there that gave Congress this power. It's called the Elections Clause. And Madison did that because he felt state legislatures were corrupt and they would pass laws to entrench themselves. They would do what we call now gerrymandering, meaning draw the election lines to favor themselves, or now do things that we would call voter suppression. They knew about all this stuff back then. That's why they put this in the Constitution. And in fact, one of the distinct aspects of the American constitutional system, of course, and political system, is the very, very important role of the U.S. Supreme Court. These justices, nine of them now, appointed for a lifetime, have the power to strike down laws by Congress or by the states. And from my perspective, very unfortunately, over the past decade, the very conservative majority of the Supreme Court has done a great deal of damage to America's laws about democracy. They overturned, in a case called Citizens United in 2010, a full century of anti-corruption laws and said that corporations can spend unlimited money in politics. They gutted that Voting Rights Act in 2013 in a case called Shelby County, and then again last year in another case. Over and over again, this court has showed either that it will wash its hands of its obligations to defend people's rights or even be affirmatively bad. This Supreme Court has not struck down a single law, restrictive voting law, by the states in the past decade, despite everything that's going on. Even so, they have said clearly that the Constitution gives Congress the power to act. What they know, though, is it's not so easy to get Congress to act. What I'm worried about is we are in a situation right now where if Congress cannot act to protect voting rights nationwide because of the filibuster and the courts will not act to protect voting rights, then states have a green light to do their worst. And I'm worried about what comes next. Well, you basically took the question out of my mouth because I did want to follow up with the failure of the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act to pass and also get your take on the Supreme Court's role. And I will in a follow-up question. But first, now that the national legislation has failed, at least for now, how significant of a setback is this? And do you support it in its current form? Or do you think it could be scaled back a bit in order to pass? You know, What concrete actions can be taken to continue, as you say, the fight to vote? Well, it was very important legislation. It was very strong legislation. As you say, it passed the House of Representatives. 
the president was ready to sign it and it had the support of a majority of the Senate. And it was only this procedural rule, the filibuster, that enables a minority, in this case the Republicans, to block it. I really do think it's critical that the supporters of voting rights in Congress continue to push. You know, I don't think that cutting it down necessarily will get more votes. Because again, without changing that filibuster rule, you need 10 Republican votes not just one or two or three. And Senator Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader, he has told his senators and his caucus, according to the Washington Post, that they said, oh, you know, McConnell has encouraged us to talk to the Democrats about anything except for voting rights and campaign finance. That's a red line. We are not to talk to them about it. So I would be thrilled if there were bipartisan support for important legislation like this. I look forward to it. I'm not expecting it. One thing that people are talking about is fixing something called the Electoral Count Act, which is a statute from the 1880s that sets out how Congress counts the electoral votes, which is one more quirk of our quirky system. As you know, people vote, hundreds of millions of people vote for a president, but the way a president is chosen is by the electoral votes. Whoever wins the majority of each state, those votes go to that person. And what it turned out to be the case is that that law from the 1880s has some problems, some lack of clarity that Trump tried to exploit. So there's an idea, well, you could fix the Electoral Count Act to make it clear how the votes get counted. And I think that's a nice thing to do, <laughs> but it isn't any kind of substitute at all right. for protecting the voting rights of millions of people. And if they are going to move forward with legislation like that, they must include strong protections for voting rights, strong protections for black people and other people of color who are facing grave challenges to their ability to participate. Well, once again, you read my mind. I was going to ask you about the Electoral Count Act and the push to reform it. Many Republican lawmakers are pushing this. And while it is not a substitute for voting rights legislation, say Democrats, some say it is still a good move. And I assume that it would have Democratic support. You know, I think a lot of Democrats would say that that without more meaningful voting rights legislation as part of it, maybe not the whole thing of the Freedom of Vote Act, but that it would give a fig leaf of legitimacy to rigged elections. And I don't know that there would be so much support for it. But the problem is it applies only to one election every four years for one office, the presidency. And if all the way up to the final counting of those electoral votes, the officials have been removed who fairly count the votes, the voters have been prevented from voting, and on and on and on, then you still have some of the obstacles to a free and fair election, even with the Electoral Count Act. It's a good thing to do. It just doesn't rise to the level of, of right. the bills that just got blocked by the filibuster. Indeed. Well, it was really extraordinary because I remember on December 8, 2020, states' electors were certified, and I just said to myself, that's it. Nothing else can happen. And then, of course, along came January 6th, the attempt to subvert the will of the people by trying to coerce then Vice President Pence to violate his oath of office, to not count the votes as they were submitted. So it just shows you how even something as quirky and seemingly unimportant as that, it needs well, to be reformed. People didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to the Electoral College until about 20 years ago. That's because for well over a century, Whoever won the popular vote also won the Electoral College. And Biden and Harris in 2020 
they won convincingly in the popular vote. They had the highest margin for a challenger to an incumbent president of any election since Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1932. But because of the Electoral College, a few thousand votes in different states, if they'd gone different ways, then Trump would have been elected. So it's one of these things that is a relic. It was originally, among other things, gave extra power to the states where there was slavery. And it's a relic of a bad old time in our country. And now it turns out it matters a lot. Yes, indeed. And of course, there's a movement here in the United States to abolish the Electoral College and just elect the president on the popular vote, which would lead us to a whole different discussion. But do you have any thoughts about that? I'm for that. A lot of people are for that. Donald Trump was for that. And, you know, really, again, most people, when they're going to vote, they think they're voting in the popular vote election. Because of the Constitution, it is in the Constitution. So the only way you can eliminate the Electoral College is to pass a constitutional amendment. And that is very hard, notoriously hard. And it's one of the reasons so few amendments have been passed to the Constitution. You need three quarters of the states to vote for it. There is an idea, which I think is a good one, called the National Popular Vote Compact, where basically a bunch of states have already done this. They've agreed that whoever wins the popular vote, they will vote their electors for that person even if they didn't win their state. So far, not enough states have done this for it to work, but a few more states here and there, and you might be able to, in effect, make the Electoral College, if it isn't repealed from the Constitution, at least kind of a thing of the past. Well, as we close, Michael Weldman, you did already talk about the role of the Supreme Court with respect to voting and the ramifications of many decisions like Shelby versus Holder and the Arizona decision that gutted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Briefly, give our listeners a sense of why the 1965 Voting Rights Act was so important and why the erosion of it is also extremely dire and just adds to the challenges we have with many states passing voter suppression laws. Well, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was in many ways, the most successful civil rights law. And it was enacted after Dr. Martin Luther King and a young activist named John Lewis, who later became a very revered member of Congress, led a voting rights movement in Selma, Alabama. And black people in the South at that point really could not vote. And there were all these tricks and ways that kept them from voting. And in 1965, after a peaceful march in Selma was attacked by police on national television, public support swung toward voting rights. The president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, pushed the Voting Rights Act through Congress. And it was an extraordinarily successful law. It changed the country. It created, really, for the first time, a real American democracy, a multiracial democracy. And the key provision at the time said that states with a history of discrimination on race in voting, if they wanted to change their voting rules, they had to get permission in advance from the Justice Department or from a federal court. This was called preclearance. And this worked really, really well for decades. Well, in 2013, the Supreme Court destroyed that provision, gutted the law in a case called Shelby County. And Chief Justice John Roberts, he basically said, well, that was then this is now. Racism is significantly a thing of the past. He pointed out correctly that black voters were voting at the same rate as white voters. He didn't point out, but didn't really need to point out, that at that moment, Barack Obama was in his second term as president of the United States. So he's not wrong. It's not exactly the same as it was back in the days when 
a black person trying to vote would be attacked. But he said that was then, this is now racism is a thing of the past. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the other justices, wrote a dissent in that case, and it's sort of a famous dissent. It made her a folk hero to a lot of people. She said that is like standing in a rainstorm, holding an umbrella, and not getting wet. And therefore, you throw away your umbrella because you're not wet. And Roberts and Ginsburg were basically making a prediction about what was going to happen. Well, Ginsburg was right. What happened was things changed. States began passing all these laws that would have been stopped by the Voting Rights Act. But there was a part of the Voting Rights Act that still was in existence and actually had been used to block a lot of those bad laws over the past nine years. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And last year, in a case called Brnovich, the Supreme Court gutted that part of the Voting Rights Act. So what that means is there really are few protections from the federal courts for voters who have their rights abused based on racial discrimination. And we make a mistake, I think, if we look at how things are now and what the laws are now and say, oh, you know, that's not really so bad. This one here isn't so bad. That one there isn't so bad. There's just every reason to think that now that is open season, that partisans or people who have a racial bias are going to use this opportunity to try to change how our democracy works. You know, in the United States, all the population growth comes in the South and the Southwest, states like Florida and Texas and Georgia and Arizona. And 95% of that population growth are people of color, of Latinos and Asians, and also to some extent blacks. They should be getting more representation in our government right now. And instead, you're seeing voting laws and redistricting, drawing of the district lines about who you get to vote for that cut off their representation. And that is going to be something we are going to be fighting and living with for years to come. Michael Waldman is president of the Brennan Center for Justice and author of The Fight to Vote. Michael Waldman, thank you so much for your time and keen insights on this critical issue. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.